All right, you can see our lesson is on In Covenant with God. And if you want to turn in your copy of scriptures to where we're going to be in a minute, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. Hebrews 10.1 tells us that the Sinai covenant was just a shadow of the good things to come. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. When I was working as a home health nurse, I lived in a rural county, and sometimes I get, got sent out to the very remote parts of that county to visit people. One day, they sent me out to visit an elderly husband and wife. This couple was in their late 90s. They were almost 100 years old. And when I got to the farmhouse, the wife greeted me at the door. I remembered the husband was standing there with his arm around her. They both looked so frail and skinny, but they were just grinning like happy kids. And so we went in and sat down on the couch to visit for a few minutes, and I noticed that they held hands as we were talking. And then we moved to the kitchen table so I could check their vitals and go on with the nursing visit. And the husband pulled the chair out for his wife, and he seated her like she was a queen. And he sat there at the corner of the table so he could hold her hand. We didn't get very far before she said, I got to tell you how we first met. She said that her daddy was the first man in town to buy a motor car. And it was wonderful until the car quit running. And they didn't have any mechanics or garages back then. So he asked around to see if there was anyone in town who knew how to fix a car. And a few days later, this teenage boy showed up at the house and fixed the car. Her daddy was impressed. A week later, that boy came back and asked her daddy if he could marry his daughter. The, the, her father said, well, she's only 15 years old, but if you'll wait a year and you both still want to get married, you have my blessing. So do the math. This couple was married they, when they were teenagers, and now they were almost 100 years old. And it was obvious by the glow on their faces that they were both so happy. That, to me, is a picture of what covenant looks like. A covenant looks like true love, love that remains true. And what I like about that description of covenant is that this couple started life together and they finished life together. But there was that long middle part where you know, anyone who's been married knows that there will be struggles and difficulties, maybe even heartbreaks, but that's when their love remained true. That's the power of covenant love. God's goal has always been an unbroken relationship with man. I will be your God and you will be my people. An unbroken relationship with people involved? How is that even possible? God's involvement is what makes covenant possible, a lasting covenant. And one of the ways that God does this is through worship. As we look at the story, the true story, that God has recorded for us in the last half of the book of Exodus this morning, we find that there's actually an act one and an act two. And I apologize that we don't have time for an intermission between act one and two. Act 1 shows us the wonder of worship during times of certainty, certainty in our relationship with God. 
Act 2 shows us the wonder of worship in times of uncertainty. Now, there's a visual background as this story unfolds. It's, it's the backdrop of Sinai, Mount Sinai itself. And God is showing us something and showing the nation of Israel as well through this because God is up here on the top of this mountain in his glory and the people are down below. And the only way to really communicate other than God directly speaking to them as he did was through their mediator, Moses. And so God, in this backdrop to the story, is showing us this vast distance between a perfect holy God and the imperfect people below. But that's only the backdrop of the story because the wonder of the story itself is how much God is involved in our worship to keep that flame of love alive in our relationship. And so when we look at the backdrop that God painted, we see that Moses made seven ascents, seven trips up and down the mountain in about the space of a year. And so if any of you want to look at the actual verses and see where those seven trips were, Diane and I both have a little slip of paper with the verses on them, and you can check it out for yourself later. But in this lesson, God shows us that this gap between him and man is, is so big that no one could bridge it except Jesus Christ. But again, that is the backdrop for the actual story that unfolds. So we're going to start with Moses' fourth trip up the mountain. The first act takes place in the first four trips up the mountain. So let's summarize all of those. So at the beginning of Exodus chapter 19, Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses went up to meet with God. God gave Moses a proposal for the nation of Israel, sort of like a wedding proposal. He had just rescued them, redeemed them from Egypt. And God said, I carried you on eagle's wings to myself. God did not just take them out of Egypt to a place. He took them to a person, to himself. And God said, tell them, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be to me a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So Moses took that proposal down to the people. If the people said yes, then the ceremony would take place. Well, the people said yes, and Moses took their response back up to God on his second trip up the mountain. Now, obviously, God did not need Moses to tell him what the people said, but God said there were, he was doing something in all these trips up and down the mountain and his glory being on the top of the mountain. He was showing them one thing to how to fear God so that they would not sin. But in addition to that, he says on the second trip up the mountain that he is going to show the people that they could trust Moses and believe in him as their mediator, that God was truly speaking to him. And so Moses went down as instructed and consecrated the people and told them to prepare to meet their God. And boy, did God show up in a big way with brilliant light and flashes of lightning and cloud of smoke and loud trumpet blasts and the whole mountain shaking. And when Moses spoke to God, 
God answered in thunder. And so then Moses went up a third time to get some additional instructions. And when God sent him down, God actually spoke the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. And so that brings us to the fourth ascent up, up the mountain where, God, where Moses went back up into the thick, dark cloud on the mountain where God was. God on this trip, the fourth trip up the mountain, is going to reveal to Moses detailed ordinances for the nation of Israel in chapters 21 through 23 of Exodus. And so these detailed ordinances, along with the Ten Commandments, make up what Exodus calls the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant is just a little bit longer than Christ's Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount takes about 12 minutes to read. The Book of the Covenant takes about 15 minutes to read. And what I want us to look at first this morning is something very important that God inserted between the Ten Commandments and the ordinances, some instructions about worship, showing how God is involved in worship to keep that flame of love burning in our hearts. Yahweh, the one and only God, who initiated his covenant with Israel at Sinai and with us in Christ, is the God who initiates and sustains our worship in covenant with him. So let's read together in Exodus 20, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. The first thing I want us to see here is that twice we see in this passage how God initiates worship. It starts with theophany, an appearance of God. You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Now, the the theologians may not see Jesus as coming to earth as a theophany like the way God and Jesus appeared to people in the Old Testament, but in my mind, Christ's coming was the greatest theophany of all time. Emmanuel, God with us. Worship is also initiated by God, causing his name to be remembered. The last line here, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Throughout the Old Testament, long before Mount Sinai, God's people built altars and worshiped when God appeared to them or acted in a mighty way that showed his presence. I love how our VBS leaders called these God sightings. All those ways, big and small, every day, that God is reminding us of his power, his goodness, his everlasting love, and his continual presence in our lives. Next, I want to look at the word altar and sacrifice. Those words are tied together. Altar is a sacred place for sacrifices and gifts offered up to God. The altar was also a bloody place. The word altar in Hebrew means a place of sacrifice, 
because it is a noun, a thing, from the verb zabak, translated sacrifice. That verb means to slaughter an animal. And so these words are tied together. When God told Moses to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings, that was already a familiar concept to the nation of Israel. Remember, Noah offered burnt offerings after the flood. The burnt offerings were totally consumed in the flames on the altar. And then the peace offerings were offered up to God on top of those burnt offerings. The burnt offerings included sin offerings, to consecrate the worshipers. As you know, sins were symbolically removed through the animal sacrifices. Only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross could take away sins. But in the Old Testament, sins were removed symbolically. The worshiper would place his hands on the animal, symbolically transferring his sins onto the animal. Then he would slaughter it, and then he would burn it on the altar. When the worshiper saw all that blood on the altar, that blood represented a life that was given up for his sin because God's just penalty for sin has always been death. So once the worshipers were made acceptable to God, having their sins covered or atoned for, by the blood of the animal, then the worshipers would dedicate themselves to God. And one way they demonstrated that was through peace offerings that were given on top of the burnt offerings. Now pause and apply that to ourselves in the new covenant. I want us to keep in mind, obviously, that our offerings do not create God's favor. Christ's sacrifice on the cross alone is what creates favor with God. You will not find salvation by works anywhere in the Old Testament. Paul made it crystal, crystal clear in the book of Romans that all the Old Testament saints were saved by God's grace through faith apart from works, just like we are. So in view of Christ's blood on the altar, Blood that should be our blood, but it's not our blood. In view of that, we fall on our knees spiritually in grateful, loving surrender to God and what he has done, and we offer spiritual sacrifices in worship, like the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that confess his name and acknowledge God's name. Hebrews 13, 15 like presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, Romans 12.1. So next I want to notice the phrase, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. These places are not limited to sacred places like the tabernacle or the temple. God is everywhere, and anywhere people could build altars of earth or uncut stones, as the next verse says, and worship God. This phrase, in every place, reminded the nation of Israel that they were only camped at Mount Sinai, but they weren't staying there. They were nomads on a journey. They had not arrived. In every place reminded them that there would be more places ahead, some of them dangerous and scary places, 
like battles against cities and nations. Some of them wondrous places of God's provision of miracles and victories, like crossing the Jordan on dry ground and when the walls of Jericho collapsed. Other places they would be tempted to doubt God and to break their covenant with him. At all these places, God was present, and they needed to remember God in worship. And they could, anywhere, worship in spirit and truth, as God had told them, with absolute certainty about their relationship with God. Times when they experienced God, keeping that flame of love burning in their relationship. Likewise, our lives are not static, We have not arrived. There are places ahead for all of us where God will be taking us as we travel to God's eternal kingdom. Some of them may be dangerous and frightening places. Some of them will be fraught with temptation where we might be tempted to forget our covenant with God. And some of them will be places of victory and miracles. We need to remember to worship God in all of these places because we need God in every moment of every day, everywhere along our journey. Now, I'm not trying to suggest as we look at this passage here that this is some formula for worship. Worship could look different every time. In fact, in Act 2, we're going to see that the worship is completely different. But what I want us to see in this passage is how much God is involved In worship, worship literally begins and ends with God. So before we look at this incredible blessing that God promises to give us when we worship him, I want to remind us, as we know, that we worship God because he is worthy. And that is the only reason. We don't worship him for what we get out of it. We worship God because he is worthy. But look at the promise that God gives to us In this text, he says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. We need to keep in mind that being able to worship God is a priestly privilege. In the Old Testament, it was the priests who were consecrated to approach God and minister before him. But what God said to the nation of Israel and to us in our covenant with Christ, I'm extending that priestly privilege to all of you to be consecrated and be able to come to me and worship. But God doesn't just sit there on his throne and wait for us to approach him. He says, when you're worshiping, I come to you and I will bless you. I call these extra special blessings when we worship. They're extra blessings because they're on top of all the blessings God has already given us in Christ. And they're special blessings because they are exactly what you need in that moment. Now I want us to look and see what happened when Moses actually obeyed these instructions and they had the covenant ceremony. In Exodus chapter 24... um, This passage I had to break into two slides. But Exodus chapter 24, this is when Moses came down after his fourth trip at Mount Sinai. In verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
Then he got up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 memorial stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it as the people listened. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So the next slide. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you. Now I want to just pause there for a second. A covenant as an, is an oath from God. God is making an oath to save his people, not to destroy them. God's covenants, as you look through the entire Bible, are given to remove all doubt about God's intention to save. So back here again in verse 8, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then... Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not reach out with his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate and drank. First of all, what happened to Moses And these leaders of Israel up there on the mountain, it was like a marriage feast. Now, I don't know what God revealed to them of himself. Just a few chapters later, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God says, you can't see my face because no man can see God and live. But God certainly revealed something of himself to them. And they knew they were seeing God. And, And there's this feast they share in his presence. I wish I could have been there when those elders went back to their wives. You know, the wife would say, you were up there on the mountain a long time. What happened? And the elder would say, I don't know how to describe it. I saw God. I ate a meal in his presence. I actually saw God and he didn't kill me. I'm still alive. And the wife would say, that's nice. Let me tell you about my day with the kids. (laughs) No. She'd say, what? You saw God? What did he look like? This was incredible. In this situation, I want us to pause and look at this big picture and consider the magnitude of what happened here in chapter 24. Through the blood from the sacrifices that was splashed on the altar and on the people, God was consecrating them, cleansing them of sin in view of Christ's sacrifice and consecrating them to meet with God. Now, splashing half of the blood on the altar and the other half on the people may also have signified that that one blood was joining God and the people together in a covenant like marriage. So where do our minds go when we read the words, Behold the blood of the covenant. To the Last Supper. The night before Jesus was crucified, Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, 
And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood is what cleanses us of sin and joins us together in covenant with God. And a huge part of how God daily initiates and sustains that lasting covenant relationship is through worship, God's way of keeping that flame of love burning in our relationship. So when you feel like your relationship with God might be strained or broken, worship. God wants to maintain in your heart the certainty of his love for you. He comes to you and blesses you when you worship. When you feel in the morning like you're way behind and you rush out the door and you confront one problem after another throughout the day and you think, I just don't have time to seek God's blessing, pause and worship, even if it's just for a moment of praise and prayer. And when you do this throughout the day, you will be joyfully surprised by the extra special blessings that God gives you in that moment. They may be teeny tiny blessings, but because you worship, you will know they came from God. He will make sure you know it. And God forbid, if any of us ever feels that life is going so well, we got everything under control, we don't need to stop and seek God's blessing. Stop and worship. Because when we worship, we see God as he is. And when we see God as he is, we see ourselves as we are. And we know and we see how much we need God's blessings every moment of every day, every place on our journey. Well, now we're ready for act two, which is shorter, but has just as much wonder. The wonder of worship in times of uncertainty. So let's watch through these last three trips up Mount Sinai and listen as this story unfolds. So we're ready for ascent number five in Exodus 24, verse 12. Moses sent the leaders back to their families. And Moses and Joshua went up on the mountain and stayed with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And during this time, Moses miraculously fasted from food and water during those 40 days and 40 nights. And God revealed to Moses plans for the Ark of the Covenant and for the tabernacle so that the people of Israel could see that God was with them as they traveled to the land of Canaan. Everything was so perfect. This was their honeymoon with God until just before God sent Moses back down to the people, God gave Moses some very bad news. God said, Moses, the nation has turned aside quickly by making a golden calf and worshiping it. This would be like your wife committing adultery on your honeymoon. Now, God was absolutely just in his wrath when he told Moses then and there that he would destroy the people and raise up a new nation through Moses. Sin deserves 
death. And God had made a conditional covenant with the nation of Israel, and they had broken that covenant. I think Moses at any second thought God was going to send fire down from heaven and incinerate the nation at the foot of the mountain, just like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. This was a terrifying moment for Moses. When Moses is retelling this story in Deuteronomy, he said in Deuteronomy 9 verse 14, not only did God say he was going to destroy you, but he said that he would blot out your name from under heaven. And Moses knew that God had the power to do this. Exodus 32 verse 11 tells us Moses' response to this terrifying statement by God. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God. Moses reminded God about the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. It's interesting, everywhere else in in, uh, Exodus and all the way in, in these books of Moses, it's always the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here he says, your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Hint, hint, God, these people down here, they're descended from Jacob, from Israel. Well, God relented from destroying the nation at that moment. But scripture tells us that God's wrath was burning like a consuming fire on the top of Mount Sinai when Moses went down. And when Moses saw the idolatry that was going on, you remember he threw those stone tablets down off the cliff and shattered them. It's very interesting when Moses is retelling these events in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, we learn that before Moses burned that golden uh, calf and ground it up and threw it in the water and made the people drink it, before he did that, the first thing Moses did was fall on his face before the Lord and begin fasting for another 40 days and nights, pleading with God not to destroy the people. And why did Moses do that? In his own words, Deuteronomy 9.19, he said, For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure of the Lord that he bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. This was a terrifying and urgent situation. And so Moses threw himself before the Lord, fasting and praying on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, apparently when we read Exodus and Deuteronomy and put them together, Moses didn't just spend that 40 days and nights with his face planted in the dirt. Because right at the beginning of this fast is when he ground up that idol and made the people drink it. And when the Lord commanded the uh, faithful sons of Levi to take up swords and kill 3,000 of the revelers who were out of control. So after all that happened and the fast and the praying was finished, in ascent number 6, Exodus 32 verse 31, the sixth trip up the mountain, Moses told the nation of Israel, I'm going to go back up to God and I'm going to try to make atonement for your sin. So Moses went up the mountain and he asked God to forgive their sin. But he said, God, if you won't forgive them, then blot out my name from your book as well. Moses was saying that he was willing to be blotted out with the people or blotted out for the people. Either way, what a powerful image that is of what Christ would later willingly do for us on the cross. God said those who rebelled would pay a price for their sin, but God would not destroy the entire nation. But because Israel's sin in breaking their covenant was so grievous, 
God gave Moses more bad news. God said, Moses, I promise to send an angel before you on the trip to the land of Canaan, and I will do that. But I am not going to go with you, as I said I would previously. I'm not going to go with you because these people are so stiff-necked in their rebellion that if I went with you, I would destroy them on the way. And that's where God left it. He sent Moses back down to the people, and Moses reported this tragic change of plans. And the Bible says in Exodus that the people mourned and stripped off all their ornaments from that day forward. And then something truly profound happened in Exodus chapter 33. For the next few months, Moses quit meeting with God up on Mount Sinai, but he was meeting with God in a tent outside of the camp. Now, as we're going to read here in Exodus 33, verses 7 through 10, you need to realize that this tent of meeting is like a little prayer closet for Moses, just a simple tent. It's not the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. They hadn't even built that yet. It wasn't built till the end of Exodus. And you remember, the tabernacle was always set up in the middle of the nation of Israel with the 12 tribes camped around it. But this tent was outside the camp. So remember a couple years ago during our harvest festival when we had that prayer tent and we went in there and wrote down our prayer request and we prayed for those and we prayed for our brothers and sisters' requests? That's what I want you to picture here as we read this. So if I turn in my Bible to Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses." When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would stand and worship each at the entrance of his tent. I want us to wrap our minds around what was going on during these several months down here camped at the base of Mount Sinai. We know that during this time, Moses continued to plead with God to go with them on their journey to the land of Canaan. But God did not answer that request month after month. And so look what was happening in Moses' heart and the hearts of the people of Israel. It remained doubtful. It remained uncertain whether God would even have them build the tabernacle or whether God would go with them on their journey to the land of Canaan. These faithful Hebrews continued worshiping God during this time of great uncertainty. They couldn't hear what Moses was saying to God in the tent, but they knew God was listening because God had proven to them that Moses was their mediator. And when they stood outside their tents worshiping to God, don't you know that one of the things they were saying was God, please listen to Moses' request and please go with us as we travel to the land of Canaan. Now, do you see the connection with the reality in which we live in the new covenant of Christ? 
When we pray during times of uncertainty, during those times of silence when the prayers are not answered, it may seem like God doesn't hear us during those times of silence. But we know Jesus is in the tent with God the Father in heaven, pleading our case to God and making sure that our prayers are heard. The New Testament tells us, not only in the book of Hebrews, but also in Paul's letters, that we have a better mediator than Moses. Jesus Christ, God himself, the Son of God, is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, continually interceding for us. So in Exodus 33, one day, again, Moses asked God, please go with us as we travel from here to Canaan's land. And in Exodus 33, 13, it says that Moses added something this time. He said, Lord, this nation is your people. Lord God, they know who you are. They know your story. They know all about creation and Adam and Eve and Noah and the flood and and the covenant with the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You said they will be your people and you will be their God. Lord, this is your nation. And Exodus tells us that this time, God answered Moses' prayer and he said, yes, I will go with you. And it's almost hilarious, Moses' response. It's like he didn't even hear or believe that God had said yes. He said, now Lord, if you won't go with us, then how can we know we have your favor or that we're distinct from other nations? God was very patient. He said, Moses, I said yes, I will go with you. Celebration. So that leads to the seventh trip up Mount Sinai, where God said, Moses, cut another set of stone tablets Tomorrow, meet me at the top of the mountain in the morning. And so Moses did, and he met God at the top of the mountain, and a lot happened up there. But the Bible tells us in Exodus for the third time, Moses fasted from food or water before God for 40 days and nights. He was pleading with God, Exodus says, not to destroy the people. Now, certainly he was praising God for the decision to go with them, But God's words were still ringing in Moses' ears because God had said, if I go with you, I'm going to destroy the people on the way. And he was saying, God, have patience, show mercy, forgive their sins, and do not destroy this people. What an incredible mediator Moses was. And the New Testament tells us that now there is only one true mediator between man and God the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. So that brings us to our last slide. The wonder of worship is what God does. How God is involved in our worship. How God keeps hope and that flame of love burning in our relationship just like he did with Israel in the Sinai covenant. And this is true during times of certainty. And it is equally true during times of uncertainty. So when your covenant with God is shattered by sin and disobedience, don't give up on God's faithful love. 
Keep worshiping, just like those faithful Hebrews did in Exodus chapter 33. When you've been praying for years and years for someone who does not know the Lord to come to Christ, to see who he is and what he's done and give their life to Christ, and nothing happens. Don't stop praying for that person. Keep worshiping because you know. You know your prayers are being heard by the Father. And when you've prayed and prayed and prayed for healing, for physical healing or emotional healing or victory over addictions, any of these blessings, these healings from God, and year after year there's no response from heaven. Silence. Keep worshiping. Never give up waiting on God because you know your prayers are being heard at the throne in heaven. And if at some point in your life God shows you that his answer might be no, like he did for Johnny Erickson Tata, then we can pray the prayer of relinquishment and say, Lord, your will be done. And keep worshiping. Because God is still hearing your prayers and God is still working in your life. Remember, God's covenants, this this is his oath to save his people and not to destroy us. All glory be to God. By his grace, by his grace, he is holding us in his everlasting arms in covenant with God. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are in awe before your everlasting love. We know just like the nation of Israel, we do not deserve the covenant you've made with us to be chosen and loved the way you have chosen and loved us. Father, it is only in Christ and by the authority of his name that we can approach you in prayer and worship you. And we are so thankful for how you are involved in our worship and that you are keeping, keeping our relationship alive and strong. And Father, we see in covenants, you gave these to remove all doubts, to remove all doubts about your intention to save us and not destroy us. And so I pray, Father, that if there are those who are here this morning who are doubting you, that you will through this time and in times and days ahead, that you will open their eyes to see the sincerity of your commitment in Christ by giving his life on the cross, your commitment to live in covenant with them and save them, and that they will give their lives to Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have already made that decision, I pray that when times come up in our lives, that cause us to be uncertain about our relationship with you, the Father, we will remember the covenant that you've made with us in Christ and that you will remove all doubts and that you will strengthen our faith that we may continue worshiping you now and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.